God, I thank you for the beauty and the raw nature of your promise and how we as humans sometimes, maybe most all the time, struggle to catch up to your promises. Lord, I pray that as we just spend the next few moments before we come to your table, as we spend the next few moments thinking about what promise means and how a promise says something about you, but promise also reveals and says some stuff about us, I pray that you would help us to hear both. Your faithfulness and our struggle to believe it. And Lord, I pray today that as we think about Abraham and Sarah, that you would give us the grace to honor and thank you, God, for that promise. And also, Lord, we pray that the Bible, in its wisdom and the mercy and the revelation of Scripture, that you would speak to us about our own lives and how we hold or at times struggle to hold your promise and to believe it. Help us to believe. In Jesus' name, amen. So our reading today in the Old Testament came from the 18th chapter of Genesis, and that's a really important passage of Scripture. Uh, but it's actually at the end of a very, very significant chunk of Scripture, beginning in Genesis 12. Genesis 12 is arguably one of the most important chapters in our entire Bible. It's where God appears to an old man and says, you will be the father of many nations. He says in that space that even Gentiles would come to faith and come to be included in this story that God is telling, that it would not just be a Jewish thing, but it would be for all nations, all people. And so today, if you exist in your ancestry outside the um, the lineage and the bloodline of the Jewish family. If you are Gentile, then Genesis 12 is a really, really important passage for you because it's where God basically puts his arms out and says, I'm going to wrap all of us into his story. So God promised something to Abraham. He said to Abraham, you're going to have ancestors that are going to number more than the stars in the sky. And I imagine what Abraham would have felt like at that moment as he looks up maybe under a night sky and he just sees this multitude of Stars, And then he looks at himself, and he looks at his wife, and he thinks, huh, that's going to be interesting. See, the difference between the covenant that God made to Moses and the covenant that we see with Abraham is that Moses' covenant was conditional. If you do this, I will do this. If you do this, I will do this. Whereas the covenant that God makes in Genesis 12 and again in Genesis 15, and then we see it come to a new level of specificity in Genesis 18 is an unconditional covenant. God says, I will do this. And I think that it's actually really important for us to think about Abraham in this sense as our father. And not just our father as in Father Abraham had many sons, the song that maybe bounces around in your head when you think of a story about Abraham, but he is a kind of teacher to us on a number of levels. And today what I want to do is I want to dig into, just for a few moments, the really raw and human story of how Abraham behaved after God's unconditional covenant promise. Because Abraham struggled to catch up to it. His wife certainly struggled to catch up to it. So after Genesis 12, where God says, stars of the sky, like this is a big deal, it's going to be amazing. And then God reinforces it in Genesis 15. Here, here are some things Abraham does 
after knowing and hearing that he is going to be the father of many nations. They go to Egypt. He's afraid that he's going to get in trouble because his wife is beautiful. So he tells Pharaoh that his wife is his sister. Pharaoh takes his wife as his wife, finds out about it, says, get out of here. You deceived me and you brought curse upon me. Not a great move, not a great start. He then tries to help God. And I don't know about you, I've occasionally tried to help God when I've seen a promise and I've thought, I don't know how this is going to work. He tries to help God and he takes his servant woman and makes a baby with her, thinking, well, maybe this is how God's going to bring his promise about. And that son is called Ishmael, and Ishmael was a, a grief and a pain to him. Even though Ishmael was blessed in his line, Ishmael represented for Abraham what happens when we try to get our hands on the promise of God and make something happen. Ishmael is not Isaac. Isaac, that laughing boy, that child of promise that we heard about as we heard the gospel, is a very different picture from what happened in Abraham's story when he tried to get his hands on and make a promise happen. And so one of the things that we're invited to do as we sit with the Bible in church or in our own personal devotional life is to read the Bible and honor the Bible for what it is, the stories that it tells. This is a story about your faith. This is a story about God's faithfulness. But the Bible also reads us. Whenever we read scripture, I believe we're meant to read in two directions. What is the story telling me about God? And what is the story telling me about me? Humans and their response to God's powerful promises, his unconditional promises. Remember, Abraham covenant, Moses covenant, this is an unconditional covenant promise. God says, you will be fruitful and out of you the nations will be blessed. Jesus will come. But Abraham and Sarah play games in their marriage. They get with a servant child woman and make a child that is not the child of promise, a kind of shadow of promise. And as I think about my own life, and I bet as you think about yours, we all have little shadow promises, places where you were thinking you were moving in a direction to make things better, and yet in some way you make something that feels a little bit off, not quite, less than. That's where Abraham was. So that's where Abraham is. And Abraham is sitting in a place now under the oaks of Mamar. And three men appear to him. Three strangers. Rublov in his icon, which is right in front of me, depicts the Father, Son, and Spirit entering the story of humanity to speak to barren people to tell them they would have a baby. I love this icon so much. It's such a beautiful picture. It's actually been in the news lately. Um, Rublev's icon has been given back to the church with much controversy surrounding it. I'm not going to make any kind of political commentary about the Russian and Ukrainian war. Needless to say, Vladimir Putin has taken it out of the museums and he's given it back to the church and the church is now holding this icon after many many hundreds of years. Rublev I think rightly saw in this story that when we have made a mess of things, when we have tried to make it happen, when we have lived in fear and insecurity, God shows up anyway. Which is exactly what he says in Genesis 12 again in 15. He says I'm going to show up anyway. This is unconditional. 
This is not predicated upon your own good behavior. I'm coming anyway. So we find at the beginning of our passage in Genesis 18, Abraham with Sarah in the tent, just hanging out in the woods, and these three strangers come. These three strangers come, and what does Abraham do? He moves. Rudolph read it. He, he runs here, and he hastens here, and he goes here, and he prepares here, and he gets his wife ready, and he goes to his servants. He's a person who responds. And when I hear Abraham, and I think about Abraham, and I think about all the things he'd done to make it complicated, and then I think about his response when God comes close to him, I think about Peter. Remember after Peter had failed Jesus three times, he had been told, like, it's going to get hard, and we're going to make it through, and then he blows it. What does he do when he sees Jesus when he's in the boat and Jesus is on the shore? He dives in the water, like foolishly dives in the water because John stays in the boat and gets there before him, which is like the life story of Peter and honestly one of the reasons why I love Peter and Abraham because it's kind of my life story. It's like you make a move and then it's a pretty inefficient move. But the gift of Peter and the gift of Abraham is that after failure, when God comes close, they move toward him. And I believe that maybe the best response in our human frailty in light of the promises of God is not about you not failing, because I actually don't think you have that option. It's cultivating a response after you fail that is not indicative of shame, because what does shame do? Shame keeps us in the tent. I think Sarah was dealing with disappointment and disillusionment and shame. And there are parts of me that hide in the tent. In this instance, I would argue for your own formation, you should think of Abraham and Sarah as both being parts of you. And part of me hides and part of me wants to run. I want to bless the part of me that wants to run toward God. And I want to name the part of me that hides because God has something good to say to that part too. So they come, these three strangers, Abraham starts moving and then the strangers ask about his wife. And this is where I think it's really important for you and me to think about Abraham and Sarah probably as kind of parts of a whole here. If you'll like hang with me a little bit as you think about your own formation. And I love the fact that God, and I kind of don't love the fact that God will bring those parts of us that are hiding and ashamed and disillusioned into the conversation. He asks pesky questions God does. He does it to me. He does it throughout the Bible. You should pay attention when Jesus or God is asking a question and they ask about Sarah and Sarah is hiding in the tent and she laughs when the stranger suggests that she's going to have a child. She just can't believe it and it's understandable that she can't believe it. Past her time, they'd already experienced disappointment. They'd already made a mess of things. I mean, imagine how Sarah felt when Abraham went into her servant and made love to her and had a baby. There was so much complexity around family for them, around future, around God's promise. And so she's in the tent and she's laughing because they'd missed their chance. She's laughing because they had disappointed themselves, because they were disappointed in God. She was laughing because time had passed them by. Their window had closed. And she was laughing so that she would not cry probably so that she would not succumb to bitterness and if you think about Sarah 
rather than flattening her out and making her like a character that you can distance yourself from, I have to think about my own life and think about where are the places in my own life where I'm facing disillusionment, discouragement, and I want to hide in the tent and I want to laugh cynically, sadly, fearfully. And then the text shifts. There's this one verse, and, and I just want to dig it up and, and read it to you. Because right up until this moment, it's these three strangers speaking. And then in verse 13, the text shifts in its specificity. And it says, the Lord said to Abraham. So now we know God's involved. This is God. The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? At the set time, I will return to you in due season and Sarah shall have a son. And then, I love it, Rudolph, you nailed it with the like timing of the reading when, but Sarah denied it saying, I did not laugh for she was afraid. And he said, oh yes, you did laugh. <laughs> Why did Sarah laugh? I love the exchange there. Sarah doesn't admit it because she's afraid and she's embarrassed. And then God says to her, oh yes, you did laugh. A big part of my own life has been learning to admit when I laugh in fear and cynicism, learning to admit when I've been caught out in a place of fear. Our silly behavior does not change God's mind. I just am going to say it again. Your silly behavior, your fearful behavior does not change God's mind. It doesn't change who he is. It doesn't change what he's going to do. When Sarah laughs, the Lord actually gets really specific. He's like, this time next year, I'm going to come. There's going to be a baby here. And the way we tend to live our lives, the way we tend to believe, and most of us would never admit this out loud, but a lot of us believe as if when we fail and say, I don't believe it. I don't believe, God, you can heal a marriage. I don't believe, God, you can give me hope. I don't believe, God, that you can do something in my heart or my life or my body or my relationships or the world. We live as if God says, okay, fine, done. Not dealing with you anymore. But that's not what happens in this. God moves closer to people who are struggling to believe. So I just want to share a few things that the Lord is teaching me just to bring this right on down to, to your Tuesday afternoon. First, there are times when God's promise seems impossible. Second, we sometimes try to help God and make things more difficult. Third, God does not give up on us when we do this or his promise just because we're anxious and dumb. And I actually don't think a lot of you believe that. So I'm going to say it again. God does not give up on his promise or on you and the process just because you do dumb stuff. Most of the dumb stuff I've ever done, I did because I was afraid. And I think the same is true for you. Number four, when God moves toward you, he invites you to move toward him. Remember Abraham? He started running, started doing things. God wants you to move toward him when you sense that he's moving toward you. So that's number four. Number five, God is determined to get at the root of your fear and insecurity. Consequently, he will ask you questions. 
God is always looking to find the part of you that is like Sarah. Why? Because he wants to bring Sarah out of the tent. There are parts of you that need to be questioned by God so that you will come out of hiding and begin to believe him in new ways. So he's going to ask you questions. Sixth, when we lie to ourselves and to God, he will remain faithful, but he will press into those lies. Oh, yes, you did laugh, he will say. So here's where I want to leave this. We're going to have a moment of some stillness and some quiet. And here's the question I would love for you to hold before we come to the table. Where do you find yourself in this story? If we're not meant just to read the Bible, but to allow the Bible to read us, if we're meant to allow the Bible into our intimate space, where, where are you in this story? Is there an impossibility you are sitting with? Is there a place of discouragement or disappointment that you're holding? Are there parts of you that are hiding and parts of you that maybe want to do and move and engage? I want us to ask the Lord to help us find our life in this story just for a few moments. So let's be still together. And then Jana is going to lead us to the table. God bless you guys. Thank you for having me.